back when I was about to, I don't know, I think I was like nine years old, there was two things I really, really kind of didn't like. Like any kid, I didn't like school. And the other one was uh, was Sunday school. And uh, I ended up realizing the power of the story, you know, back then. Now, I know I had a podcast uh, a couple podcasts ago that uh, discussed the power of the story. But um, it's a little bit different tonight. I had one particular day I didn't want to go to school. I had kids that were picking on me the entire time. Joey Valenzuela, Art Muro. I remember the kids. And there was a couple others besides them, about five in total. But primarily it was those two. Every day I'd be chased home. And it was like clockwork. So whether or not it was coming out through the park or I, I went to a place called Van Buren Elementary over in uh, Yorbalinda. And um, it didn't matter which route I would take. For some reason, those kids would always be there. It's like, I don't know. I mean, they had enough of them. There was about five of them in total that uh, they just ended up... <laughs> it was bizarre, almost like this bizarre form of communication where they would intentionally block the exits and everything. And inevitably, it would end up with, with a race, with me fearing for my life, trying to get home as fast as I possibly could, and not uh, not undergo being physically punished by these children and everything. And this happened all the time over in, uh, over in your Belinda. And it happened, uh, I'd say, since about third grade or something like that. So, it was about uh, fifth grade. I had a couple particularly bad days in a row. And I just didn't want to go to school. I didn't want to have to face it again. So, I woke up one morning... And I had this thought. I looked over at the lamp. It uh, was right next to my bedside. And as I went to go uh, turn it off, uh, as I rolled uh, or turn it on, I remember. I thought about how quickly that actually got hot. And then I thought, hey, wait a second. That thermometer goes in my mouth, and it reacts to the heat inside my mouth. So I got this idea. Stick that thermometer on the side of that, uh, on the side of that thing, and wham! I can actually, you know, heat the thing up if my mom gives me a thermometer to check my temperature, and, you know, because that's that was usually her gauge to tell whether or not I was really sick or not. Was the thermometer, you know, she would fill my head and tell me I don't have a fever and go to school. You know, you don't have a fever, you're not sick, so. Inevitably, I was trying to come up with different ways to defeat the system that she had devised, you know, to basically determining whether or not I was really sick or not. So, anyways, I got that bright idea this morning, you know, to heat that thing up. And I ended up, uh, (laughs) it was kind of funny, I held it on too long. Boom, thermometer was busted. So... I learned very quickly that the power of that thing, of the of the lamp, the incandescent lamp, in creating too much heat on the uh, on you know on a um, I can't even think of talk at the same time on a thermometer, and I ended up taking the thermometer and taking little bits and pieces of it and everything. I ended up hiding it, you know, making sure my mom couldn't find it and everything. 
So, I knew she had another one, backup one somewhere. So, anyways, I ended up, you know, she ended up pulling out that one. She couldn't find the primary one, so she went for her backup. And in she strolls and everything, complaining about the loss of the thermometer that, that uh, doesn't know where it is. And she's like, you don't know where it is. And I said, why would I know where a thermometer is? Well, I mean, <laughs> a disappearing thermometer is. You know, and uh, my quizzical question at that point, you know, to her, or quizzical retort, I should say, to her question just definitely had her uh, questioning me and everything. So, anyways, this time I was a little bit wiser about things. So I, I, I ended up shooting, you know, so I was testing out my theory first, but I didn't know where she had the second one. So when she brought in the second one, I realized that my theory was pretty accurate and I can actually get out of this, but I just have to be a little bit more delicate with it. So, she brings the thermometer in like she usually does. She walks away. And at this point, I, I lightly tap tap it against it and I look at how fast the thermometer is rising. You know, lightly tap, lightly tap, lightly tap. You know, just basically, you know, getting the heat to it and everything, but uh, without actually exposing it for too long. And all of a sudden, I get it up to about 101.5. Quickly shove it in my mouth as I hear my mom coming, uh, coming, uh, you know, through from the other room, and she pulls it out, and by then it's down to 101.2. She goes, "Oh my, you are sick." And at this point, she says, "Well, you're staying home, young man." And at this point, it was just, you know, I got to stay home that day. Now, I use this trick quite a few times. Um, I, I learned not to abuse the trick and just basically uh, use it for times that I really, really, really didn't want to go to school. And in that particular day, I can't tell you how badly I didn't want to go to school. These kids had been vicious with me, and it had been literally like a week straight by this point. And it was Thursday, or about a, it was about three days straight at this point, and it was, we were approaching a, a Thursday, and... I'm just like going, okay, well, if I could time this right, I could get Thursday and Friday off. And uh, sure enough, I ended up, you know, I I, the temp, I ended up dropping it to, it was, I think I en ended up getting it to 100, just a little tad over 100. I want to make it look like she was being effective with curing me of my cold and everything. And at that point, um, by the time uh, Sunday rolled around, um, I ended up uh, getting the temperature back, or actually it was Saturday, uh, I ended up getting the temperature back down to normal and everything. So, and uh, it was just uh, one of those things that just, it's how I ended up curing myself, you know, of uh, basically get, getting around the, the desire to go to school and everything. You know, and actually, in, in particular, voting some of the nasty elements and everything there. So, anyways, I, because of my love for books, I was in a program called Reading is Fundamental, RIF, is uh, what it stands for. And uh, what this program is, is for every book that you read, you, uh, you, basically there's a program where you end up, um, getting people to sign up and the money that uh, that they'll that they offer to donate to you gets donated to the charity of your choice so you don't get any money of that yourself but basically somebody sponsors you you know and they you have a whole list of sponsors and based on the number of books that you read within a certain period of time and based on the no, those number of books 
they will actually pay a certain amount. You know, so people sign up on the sheet that, you know, that I take around. It's just basically a donation sheet. And it's just like, okay, um, I am so-and-so. I live at this address. Here's my phone number. And I pledge to offer you five cents per book that you read. And uh, the five, five cents to, to ten cents was pretty much normal. Um, had a few people that were a little bit uh, thriftier than that because they knew my, about my voracious reading habits and everything. But most of them shot around five, five cents a book and everything. And for me, it was it was a way to actually provide to charity indirectly, without actually having to, um, you know, I, and at a young age too. This was started. I I think I started the first time riff uh, riff occurred was maybe first time I came across it was in third grade and uh, that's actually what got me into science fiction and, and fantasy and the occult and basically a whole bunch of different types of books and everything regarding uh, fiction uh, fictional substances altogether so um, it was about then that I ended up getting into the story the idea and notion of the story um, I mean I'd always you know watch TV and everything but I had it was just my 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 appetite for books and for anything from alternative perspectives, whether or not it was alternative timelines or alternate dimensions or alternate realities where magic was real and um, people can transform themselves into different creatures or robots were sentient or um, bad guys. Uh, you know, and good guys fought against each other and that kind of stuff. You name it, I would read about it. And uh, so, in particular, the first year that I ended up joining the Riff uh, program, I think it was it was either the third or fourth grade. Um, for it's, I think it's a period of yeah, it's during the school year. They sponsor you, and you know, during the course of it, you're you're supposed to do some reading and everything for um, for school, of course. You know, so you're going to be assigned book reports and that kind of stuff and everything. But besides that, um, the expectation was that, uh, you know, you would read on your own, you know, doing uh, during your own time and everything. And you would do it just for, you know, for the benefit of yourself, you know, for the simple enjoyment of it. And uh, and I did. You know, I, and I read voraciously. This is actually where I was exposed to um, everything from, <laughs> I mean, I'll go back and say Richard Heinlein and... Um, the Chronicles of Narnia, all the way to uh, Ray Bradbury and Hugh uh, or H.G. Uh, Wells, and I. Uh, it was, I mean, and then there was some. Also, there was some bio, you know, biographical type stuff in there, some nonfiction stuff, which I certainly, uh, you know, read a lot of as well. All the way from you know World War or the wars, the separate wars, books on war, all the way to. Uh, <laughs> One of my favorites was a book on uh, Hugh Hefner and a uh, biography on him. That was later, though. It was in sixth grade, and my mom ended up getting a call from the teacher on that one. My dad was proud of me. My mom, however, she was a little bit uh, miffed that I'd read a, uh, such a misogynistic book and everything. It's not her words, but in any case, the first year, I ended up reading 135 books. I remember the number, you know, and I remember pe people being a little bit uh, put off by the fact that they actually had to you know, provide me nearly, you know, $10, you know, in order to basically 
you know, appealed to the sponsorship they, they made of me. And, you know, I ended up making a lot of money for the charities that were actually responsible for, you know, that we ended up donating this money to and everything. So it was really interesting. But it was interesting people's responses. Like, there's no way that you read 135 books, you know, and uh, they would ask for the list. And I had typed up the list. And I'd hand them the list. And uh, sometimes they would spot books that they knew, you know, and they would actually ask me to, um, to tell me something about the book and everything. And I was able to appeal to them. I very quickly spat off, you know, some of the, some of the things about the book and, you know, in particular about the storyline and, you know, maybe the main characters and everything. I mean, it was still fresh in my head. It was only, it had only been a year. So... They were just like, holy shit, he did read all these books. So at that point, they ended up, I ended up, uh, year after year, I got less people that were uh, willing to sponsor because the uh, sheer number of books that I was reading. But it was really interesting that uh, they would just very quickly, you know, say, hey, okay, I'll, I'll go ahead and sponsor you and everything. And it was an interesting little program and everything. But um, in any case, um, reason I'm talking about all this is uh, stories to me have meant something in my life, you know, really importantly. Um, I've told, told myself stories my entire life. My head is constantly working, you know, and I, I know this isn't abnormal, you know, for most people and everything and the stories that we tell them. The stories that I would tell would be everything from, you know, the paranoia about these kids that were chasing me home and everything all the way to... Um, stories about believing that Santa Claus wasn't real, um, all the way to stories of uh, belief, utter belief that my ex-wife's ex-wife was cheating on me, or you know that, uh, or the utter belief, the story that I was telling myself shortly after that that all women are going to cheat, so I might as well cheat as well. Um, stories such as the value of my labor, you know, as a programmer and everything, and, and how I can actually find out what I was worth from a market-oriented perspective and everything, and, and how that led to ultimately me dramatically undervaluing my own worth. Um, stories which, you know, that uh, basically talked about the origin of things, you know, and my interpretation of, of science and um, in many cases, misinterpretation of science that actually brought me to my own belief system and everything. Um, stories about the the origin of mathematics, the origin of um, belief, of will, of, of everything. So, years ago, um, I saw pictures of Hubble. I don't know if you've seen those pictures. It was... Uh, a series of photos that were first taken when the Hubble telescope was actually put in orbit. And it, it depicted uh, a galaxy of galaxies. It, it, the, the further it looked off in the distance and everything, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Hubble, but the Hubble is an orbiting space platform. It's an orbiting telescope which has better capabilities to see the... the you know, the infinite nature of, or the seemingly infinite nature of the universe, you know, and being able to see all the galaxies. Uh, and again, not all the galaxies, but being able to see a wide swath of galaxies through the night sky and everything. And the Hubble telescope was, and still is, a pretty incredible telescope that's used for high-resolution photography of, uh, of space. 
And uh, it's the first in the clearest shots that, uh, that anybody has ever achieved of, of galaxies out in space and everything. And the images, the first images that were retrieved, not just of, you know, for the first time, you know, we had been getting, prior to then, planets and other star systems and that kind of stuff, but we'd never really seen to the depths of the galaxies and everything. And, and that's what this thing did. It actually showed, the further it appeared, it showed galaxies and galaxies of galaxies. Now, Earth itself, if you're not familiar, is, a, uh, is in something called the Milky Way Galaxy. Milky, Milky Way Galaxy is divided into four primary quadrants. It's all called the Alpha, Beta, Beta Delta, and the Gamma Quadrant. Um, Earth itself sits on the cusp between Alpha and the Beta Quadrant. And it, uh, it constantly wavers in between those two quadrants. Um, now, it in itself, this quadrant doesn't make a shade of difference. This is actually more or less a human-type label system and everything. It basically, it's mapped it out and everything. Now, um, me, with my attentiveness to stories over the years and everything, um, I started seeing a correlation of fictional resources to the outside world around me and to the real discoveries that were being made. You know, so, and the correlation I, I didn't fully understand at first, and that was, you know, how is it um, something can appear in a fictional TV show or movie? Um, and I'm going to give a, a prime example of the TV show Entourage and uh, discuss a character that's a the primary character played by Adrian Greenair is um, he's, he's casted for, he's an A-list actor inside this fictional world that's depicted in Entourage's TV show that's on HBO. Um, he's presented with a, an A-list movie based on a superhero, and, every, and there's a whole series, you know, one, one season that's, that's devoted to him actually, whether or not he should take this role, um, why he may be typecast as his character afterwards, and, you know, whether or not it's a good move for him, etc., etc., uh, when he takes it and everything, the movie is wildly successful, and he's a bigger actor than he ever has been, yada, 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 um, and the interesting thing about it was it's the character in the movie is about a, 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 a character named Aquaman. Well, Aquaman is coming out this December. You know, next month. It's star starring a guy named Jason Momoa. And uh, Jason Momoa is in Stargate Atlantis. Now, it's not the first time that I'd seen things that had actually been depicted in fictional, fictional resources at first. But, uh, and, and, and I state this basically piggybacking on last night's conversation about the mind, too. I was trying to understand the correlation of events that were depicted in fictional resources and, and why, you know, something like Aquaman um, ultimately results in the creation of a movie of the same name and everything. You know, had this actually been out there before? That's actually a question I have. You know, um, of all the characters, of all the superheroes, and all the, all the different ones that are depicted, why Aquaman? He's not that interesting a character. You know, um, and that's actually what, what, I, what I couldn't help but question. 
you know, and it, it's not just things like that. It's uh, other people have noticed this um, quote unquote phenomena as well, where shortly before the, the Boston Marathon, there was an episode that aired of The Family Guy, and inside that episode, they had um, a bombing that occurred at the Boston Marathon that was literally depicted by, that happened by terrorists. Now, this episode is really, um, they ended up, uh, they ended up pulling it from distribution and everything because of what happened, um, but it's still widely available and everything, and you can, you know, you can see the weird similarities, you know, between the actual event itself, you know, and the, and the TV show itself, too, and, uh, Seth MacFarlane, he's, you know, one of the ones that uh, I think is actually responsible for the family guy. I'm not too sure. Um, but whoever it was that was responsible, he ended up making a public statement. It's just like, my apologies go out to those people that are actually, you know, damaged or hurt by the uh, the events of uh, the Boston Marathon. And I, um, my episode aired before then, and I have no, uh, no desire whatsoever, you know, to offend anybody by this episode. And as a result, I'm pulling the episode. Well, and it comes down to, you know, how, how do these things happen? How is it you have an event that happens inside of a TV show, and then ultimately, all of a sudden, boom, you have a real-life event that actually reflects exactly what... I mean, this is almost exactly what was depicted in that TV show. Now, I had, I had been experiencing these things throughout my life anyways, you know, and it, it was more of, more at a personal level, where I would have an event happen, you know, that, uh, such as the whole thermometer thing, and later I would see it in a, in a TV show. Um, I, I would think things on a regular basis about different ideas and different concepts, and later I would see the very same thoughts actually manifested in, in a company that actually had created the same exact product. More times than I can count, I've had that happen, and I would always sit there and go, damn, you know, they're making so much money on this, you know, and here I am, I'd thought about it, but I didn't do jack shit about it. You know, and all of a sudden, boom, you know, somebody else beat me to that punch and everything. And the slightest delay for me ends up with somebody else being successful with this. And, you know, somebody else being a, a millionaire. And here I am, just some dude that, you know, hey, I had the thought, but that thought went to, went to somebody else. And it, it, it resulted in that, uh, in that company that's doing really well. More times than I can explain, I've had this happen. And, uh, and for me, it's just been one of those things that I've just really questioned the interconnected nature of the mind, you know, to reality. And not only that, but also how that, how the mind receives information and how the mind actually interprets that information can actually be reshaped, reprogrammed in a literal sense, you know, to create, create the events that we actually see, you know, that uh, were stimulated through on TV and, uh, movies and, other things that uh, that we ingest and that we consume through media and that kind of stuff. So, this takes me to um, to to the movie Superman. Back in 1978, I had I fell in love with um, Christopher Reeve's version of Superman. The guy, um, he's he's not like a badass. He's a cool guy. He's friendly, he's affable, he's um, approachable, he's, 
he's what I consider. He's no John Wayne or or badass um, type of guy or anything like that. He's more just a hey. I'm kind of a meek, mild-mannered guy. That's exactly as discussed in the comic books and everything. And, you know, while sure, I may be able to be able to lift a building with an arm, the simple fact of the matter is I'm kind of a cool, mild-mannered guy. You know? And, that, and that's actually what Christopher Reeve was. You know, he was that cool, mild-mannered guy. The... The guy that was just, you know, can be any dude's friend, you know? You may, you know, just... He's the type of guy that you would just sit there and you go, you know what? He's a cool, mild-mannered guy. So, in any case, uh, when I was watching the movie for the first time, I remembered the opening sequence. And the opening sequence has... Uh, Jor-El and all this stuff with the Zod and you know the planet blow, uh, planet Krypton blowing up and Superman being launched into space. Now, what was significant for me and what I always remembered was through that opening sequence. Shortly after that, they ended up having Superman's little pod going through space and everything. And he at that point was looking at uh, as a little child, you know, zooming through, hurtling through space. Um, his father was discussing things like literature and poetry and the formation of the galaxies and Einstein's theory of relativity and all this other shit and everything. And I later, I ended up starting to look at the uh, Hubble telescope stuff. You know, this is years later. It's 1978 when I first saw it, and I saw it again maybe in 1982, 1983 when it came, you know, was distributed on HBO and everything. Um... But it was the type of thing that I I always remember that opening sequence, the whole you know going through space and the words that Jor-El ended up saying to to Kal-el as he's flying through the galaxy, you know, and and I it was weird because when I ended up seeing that Hubble telescope thing, the first thing that came to my mind was Jor-El's speech. Now I didn't wonder what those what was contained in those other galaxies. I had an answer, and an immediate answer, about what those other galaxies were. Now, here's the quote that I'm gonna that I'm actually gonna take from the movie itself. Um, Jor-El, played by Marlon Brando, or voice of Marlon Brando, anyways, uh, he says each galaxy contains in its own individual laws of space and time, and. This came shortly after, before, I can't remember, the whole mention of Einstein's theories of relativity and everything. So here's, here's actually what I realized when I ended up watching or seeing the Hubble telescope pictures. So Milky Way galaxy, let's say Einstein's theory of relativity is the primary fundamental laws that actually tie um, space and time together. So E equals MC squared. Um, and I'm not going to get too technical. I'm just really I'm going to mention this equation from a physical perspective and basically say this is actually what constitutes and what, uh, what kind of governs the relationship of space and matter and time together. So, anyways, E equals MC squared is the, the thing that actually ties in um, space and time here in this Milky Way galaxy. So you go to any planet within the, within the Milky Way galaxy, 
and you're going to find that, uh, that the general laws of physics are going to be governed by E equals MC squared. You know, what that means is the speed of light, which is a constant, 186,000 miles per second, you know, is, uh, is also going to have, um, it, it has that, that time constraint, or the time fixed there. The time constraint, time fixed, whatever you want to call it. And that time constraint itself, 186,000 miles per second, you know, just basically says for every second that you watch it, it will be, you'll see 186,000 uh, 186, miles are going to be traveled by light during that period of time, based on your observational perspective from any, any individual perspective. So no matter where you are within the Milky Way galaxy, that's what you're going to see. And that's actually what, um, how the Milky Way galaxy is, is created. That is the fundamental law and equation that actually governs this Milky Way galaxy. Now, there's, there's other things. That's actually, you know, the fundamental thing that uh, governs light to, you know, to it. Then you've got another portion of the equation, which is the energy portion of the, of the equation. And the energy portion of that equation actually says E is equal, and E is energy, is equal to mass, the total mass of the of the of that system and everything that you're actually that's under observation and everything, times that speed of light squared, and that's actually what what ties it back to sound. So when you end up um, looking at things from from that perspective, this is actually the governing equation of time and space. So back in 1978, if you actually pay attention to the film. You know, that uh, starring Superman and discussing the laws of physics and space and time and that kind of stuff. They're actually giving you a real hint into how the universe itself functions. You know, how each galaxy is made up. You know, so when Hubble ultimately ended up seeing those thousands upon thousands upon hundreds of thousands of galaxies out there, you know immediately what the difference is between each one. And that difference is the governing laws of space and time and the general equations that actually might actually uh, be responsible for formulating it, if there are any, any such precise equations. Now, I, I suspect that, they, that once you start analyzing each galaxy, you're going to find out that um, some have, um, have correlated uh, equations you know, that uh, function in much the same way ours do, E equals MC squared. My suspicion is that, uh, that uh, you're going to find out that uh, a lot of these galaxies, particularly the messier looking ones, um, are not going to have these kind of equations or, um, or the, the mechanisms of, of perception um, might be remarkably different than our own. So while there's light in our universe and we see things through light and everything, um, light itself may not necessarily be something that's uh, important in this galaxy. You know, so you may not have a dependence, you know, on light and, and, uh, and energy in other galaxies. You might have more of a dependence on some, you know, some what could be unknown commodity you know, that uh, could exist in, in this other universe where it, it may exist in, in other universes or in other galaxies, but it, it may not be a dependent thing on time itself. So this is actually something really interesting presented by this is, 
you know, presented by Jor-El's uh, little speech there. It's just like, okay, he, he presents an immediate answer, you know, to what the Hubble's saying. You know, all the different possibilities that we see for galaxies when we peer through the Hubble telescope and everything. We know that we're getting an interpretation of information based on, um, based on our, our senses when we're actually receiving that information. We know that the information that we're receiving is an interpretation by, because of the double slit experiment. And that double slit experiment basically says that when an observer observes something, they themselves are responsible for influencing that thing. So when something is under observation, that uh, whatever is under observation has a tendency to create a pattern based on those that are actually observing it. You know, so, and, and what that's saying in a simple nutshell is basically um, things are not absolute until you actually, and, until you actually observe them. Things, things do not become, uh, absolute's a bad word, things do not become fact until you actually observe them. And then they become fact from your own perspective. You know, so when you observe another galaxy and the constituents, you know, how that ga galaxy is actually formulated, you know, that uh, it, the actuality of that, the application of that only occurs based on your own perspective. It doesn't mean all perspectives are going to share the same view of that object. Now, I'm suspecting that this, this actually could have some really interesting consequences, you know, such as people being able to perceive the same object in wildly different ways, you know, based on um, maybe a simple lack of uniform capabilities to be able to interpret that object in such a way that actually makes sense for, you know, for the, the related measures of those that are actually observing it. So... Anyways, um, the only reason I'm, I'm mentioning this is um, I, I don't know why I thought about the whole thing today about, uh, about the galaxies and everything, but one of the things I've constantly thought about while here in the United States or here in uh, Hollywood has been the concept of stars. Now, I look out and I see a star in the sky and everything. And uh, one of the things I find myself constantly doing is telling stories, you know, in my head. And uh, the story of the star. You know? Now, let's say another way to perceive that star is to perceive a star in the same way that you would perceive a star in uh, Hollywood. Brad Pitt, for instance. Not only is he a star that I actually see an image of, you know, on, uh, on, the, on the screen and everything, but he's actually a physical star that's located out there in the universe somewhere as well. You know, so, and this honestly is just like, I've, I've realized that, um, you know, to some degree, I've done that with a lot. You know, so everything could have dualistic and pluralistic presences. You know, it, uh, it can be any number of different things. And in some cases, I might, I, I realize that I do that just to keep myself entertained. In other cases, I do it just because, you know, I, I often do wonder, you know, are... You know, where does all the energy from a star come from, you know, to begin with? Um, let's say everything, you know, let's say you close your eyes and you, you imagine a world that's not just black, but uh, there's no sight, there's no sound. Um, and I'm going to take you down this path of, uh, I have a, uh, 
um, a cousin that recently passed that uh, she was deaf mute. Now, I always tried imagining what her world was like. Now, I knew that she can feel. I knew that, uh, you know, that uh, she would be led around by my aunt. And, you know, but uh, when it came down to it, she, you know, she, she wasn't responsive to the outside world and everything. You know, the only thing that she was responsive was based on the sense of touch and everything. When she would touch my aunt, my aunt would lead her around and that kind of stuff. It was my aunt's, uh, aunt's daughter. Now, I always wondered, you know, how did she see the... Uh, how did she experience the world? You know, um, if, you're, if you literally don't have the capability to have vision and... Not only that, but you don't hear sounds. Then basically the whole concept that's actually predicated for this Milky Way galaxy and the concept that uh, E equals MC squared and what constitutes this material world and everything almost goes out the door. There's nothing that actually physically ties her to her body other than the physical experience of, of sensation, of, of, of touch. Now, is that enough to actually keep a mind in that body? I often wonder. I don't know, to be honest. You know, but I, I often, every time I would see her, especially growing up and then as I got older and everything, um, I, I mean, first I felt sorry for her. You know, but as I got older, I started maturing past that mindset and started really instead saying... What does she see? You know, what What does she, I mean, does she see? Does she experience? You know, now, rationally, you know, you might take the path that I originally took when I was a child. You know, and that's basically says, well, she doesn't see anything. She can't see because she's blind. You know, and she can't hear anything. She can't hear because she's deaf. Well, no, she can't hear the sounds I can hear. And she can't see the sights that I can see. But that doesn't mean she's not capable of seeing. And that doesn't mean she's not capable of hearing. It just doesn't mean that the things that she hears and sees are, are going to be guaranteed to be the same thing, the one and the same thing I hear and see. That's all that means. Once I started realizing that and started thinking in that manner, that really profoundly changed my world. Now, I've made it clear that a lot of my life is is predicated on the learning experiences I've taken through TV shows and movies. There's a movie called Life is Beautiful that uh, was presented. Um, it's about a man that uh, went through World War II Nazi Germany. And uh, he, um, he was Jewish, and he had been pla placed in the prison camps. And uh, he had gotten so... It was... Uh, potentially delusional at least from the perspective of us the film film watcher and everything that um, what he experienced and everything he believed to be a dream he loved it he thought this was heaven um, he didn't see the war going on he didn't see um, and, and experience any of the the nightmarish conditions and everything that were occurring and 
I, I think that this goes to show, and it's based on a true story. That's the interesting thing about that uh, about that movie. It's based on a absolute documented um, historical facts that have happened over the uh, over the years. And not only that, but it's not the only occurrence that this has had and everything. You know that event that th these kind of events have happened. So. When I ended up um, hearing about that movie, and later I tried watching it, I just get, didn't get into it. I don't like that that whole period of time, anyways. Um, <coughs> I had a hard enough time with Schindler's List as it was. When I ended up um, seeing this kind of stuff, I started really kind of questioning the mind, you know, altogether. You know, um, is there anything that guarantees the experience that I'm having is the same thing that? Uh, that uh, somebody. That, let's say I'm making love to a woman. Well, is there any guarantee? And better question than that. Is there any likelihood that the person I'm seeing is one and the person, same person that they see? You know, um, is there is there any likelihood that uh, that the way they experience the world? is even remotely close to the way that I experience it? Is the way that I'm translating things, you know, this experience that actually happens for me and everything, is there any similarities? Now, I, I like to believe, you know, that, uh, it's, this is, it's a real mindfuck once you start going down this path and everything, you know, but, um, once I started really kind of like asking those kind of questions and everything, I started realizing that my individual experience, um, I have to accept as being unique. I have to accept that my, the things I see are things that I myself can't prove or disprove or whether or not somebody else can actually see or experience these things for themselves. But the only thing that I know, you know, factually, is that I exist. You know, that I'm the only one, you know, that, that I can actually prove that's actually here within this life and everything. You know, the things I hear, the experiences I go through and everything. And this isn't, you know, self-absorption. You know, and the reason I have these podcasts is, is because I do feel like my memory is sufficiently complex enough and everything to basically take this information and be able to retain it for a later date and potentially help me continue building and expanding this reality and this this illusion, you know, that I may have created. Now, I, I say may have because I don't know for a hundred percent, you know, and I don't know if it's something I could ever know. You know, am I have has Am I the only thing in existence like me? Am I the only thing in existence? Have I created a sufficiently complicated program? And I am a part of that program that I've actually created for myself. All these questions and everything. You know, I, I know philosophers have been trying to actually answer these questions for years. You know, I mean, this has transcended, you know, the last 2,500 or even more than that years, you know, when it comes down to conversations about what reality is and is not. 
But um So the movie thing though, um there's another one that uh, that came in and there's a Doctor Who came on tonight as usual. It's been coming on every Sunday night and the Doctor Who um just give you a little background on the Doctor Who show if you're if you don't watch it at all. I like repeating things just in case there's I don't know, just in case. Makes me feel better. Knowing that uh, in the last episode, here's what happened. Well, I'm not going to quite take you know take it that far every time. But um, Doctor Who. Doctor Who is the longest running show I'm aware of in history. It's been running for, I think, 55 years now. And uh, it's originated, it's a BBC show. And it's about a time-traveling alien that actually has two hearts. Um, who came from a planet called Gallifrey, who immediately, um, the, the story has been told over the last 55, 55 years through various episodes that the Doctor comes from a planet that got engaged in a time war with a species called the Daleks. Now, the Daleks are partially cybernetic. They, um, they're an alien species themselves. They're basically sentient robots, and they, in a lot of cases, harvest uh, harvest the brains of those that they uh, of the planets they invade in order to basically process their process their uh, uh, to be processors within the hardware that they actually employ, and uh, they create a collective network of these brains and everything, and they just leverage them as high performance quantum processors. And uh, they more or less go and, and, you know, take over planets. And that's actually more or less what they do. Well, the Doctor is a part of something called Time Lords. Um, they're, they're very few temporally aware time-based species that actually have the capability to be able to defend time and also, um, you know, more or less journey through time just as easily as, you know, I might be able to take a plane from somewhere or take a bus somewhere or something like that. So, Doctor Who is the last of his species, the Time Lords, and uh, they, the, the, they kind of ended up falling apart as a species uh, for reasons that still haven't been sufficiently disclosed. And there's been occasional reappearances of Gallifrey, you know, which basically leads us to, you know, as a watcher to, to a question, um, is, do the Time Lords ever truly go extinct, you know, um, and he, is he really the last of the Time Lords, or are they, and it's, this is my belief, the formative species, the species that's actually conquering time, and uh, a part of that is just basically this TV show. You know, it's uh, a fictional, a fictionalized thing that's actually depicting um, the reality of uh, of what's actually going on out there. So, with that said, um, Doctor Who he goes through reincarnations, and uh, when I say he, I mean he in the you know lightest terms. Uh, he's gone through at least fourteen reincarnations, and every time he ends up getting mortally wounded, uh, his body will physically reconfigure and it will basically burst into a hundred billion different pieces and more or less like tiny little suns 
and uh, each one of those uh, will in turn find a way to reconfigure to basically rebuild and create a new body and that new body is is whoever it's a brand new actor in this case it's first time that it's ever been an actress and uh, the actress is played by Jodie Whittaker and she's been playing the doctor for this last season and everything she's doing a phenomenal job in my opinion um, I, I like her as a person I like her as a as a uh, as somebody that's you know got the capability to be able to express themselves but she brings with it an interesting perspective and that's actually for the first time I've actually seen the doctor afraid you know the female doctor you know and actually exhibiting fear where the males never really exhibited any kind of fear or anything like that so in any case um, doctor tonight uh, ended up she ended up coming to this conclusion that in my opinion is erroneous um, they ended up finding going to present-day Norway um, to uh, to find a cabin in the woods and there was a little girl that was inside and she was she's blind and uh, all the all the all the entire uh, cabin had been boarded up as a massive cabin a two-story you know probably ten room cabin and uh, she had been left in there and she had been in there for nearly four you know four days and uh, there was a monster that she was afraid that was coming around and that monster would be coming around at five o'clock and she was just absolutely mortified of this thing well they they soon discover that the father that uh, had been there um, he had wired up a, a speaker on the outside and he didn't want his daughter to go wandering into the woods and be potentially threatened by animals or anything like that so he wired up a speaker on the outside and actually played, created a monster noise, and that's what the monster was, was every time it would go on a loop at 5 o'clock in the afternoon and, and make her stay indoors and everything. So she'd be mortified, absolutely you know, scared, to, scared shitless and everything because this monster was coming to get her and everything. And her dad had all but disappeared. He had been gone for, you know, for four days at this point when the doctor ended up showing up. Well, as they do some investigation, they discover that the the mirror in the top floor um, is actually going to it goes to an adjacent universe um, or an adjacent dimension, and at the at the other end of this is an exit with another with another mirror universe well it, and and basically the mirror universe that's actually in this alternative um dimension you can say looks exactly like the one that they ended up uh discovering to begin with with the cabin with the exception that everything's inverted so all the writing on their shirts are invert you know that one of them has a slayer shirt and um he's one of the main characters he's uh his shirt's actually got it's inverted so or it's you know so it's it's mirrored i should say um horizontally so and basically everything in this you know is is a mere image of itself in this alternate uh, universe so she come she comes to this conclusion she has this uh this theory that there's a conscious universe and this in this universe that they're currently in this mere universe um she comes to this really quick uh, conclusion that you know that this is a conscious universe and it's out to get us and this is a trap and all this other stuff and 
And she, then she comes to conclude that this, uh, that this zone that was right in between them is something called an anti-zone. And the, that she comes up with this big, huge, convoluted story about this anti-zone being a, um, is something that the, the universe does to protect itself, you know, whenever something goes wrong and everything. And this is, the anti-zone is just placed there in between two different places. Well, personally, I think it's wrong. An invalid assessment, and here's why. Um, I I don't you know judging by what I saw on this TV show tonight, um, I'm just going to take it as just basically I'm reviewing a situation that's happening here. You know, rather than looking at a fictional resource, I'm going to review a situation that's happening here. Now we have a man who plays the husband. And of the child that's uh, the blind, the blind child, and everything, um, they meet him, and he seems absolutely authentic with his, with what he's doing and why, and uh, and basically what ends up happening is he's over in the other universe because the, his wife is there, but she's not in the primary universe that they're in. His his wife had died. So he goes over to this other universe in order to experience time with his wife. And as a result, this creates this rift in between the two different worlds. He's enjoying his time, you know, with his daughter, of course. You know, but he's also wanting to spend time with his wife. Um, his daughter believes the mom's dead. You know, so he can't exactly bring her over to the other universe because she, he knows she'll question it. So what he's doing is he's basically going back and forth in between the two dimensions and everything, between the, her, his universe and the mirror universe. Well, eventually, if you're going to look at this from a scientific perspective and everything, um, basically if you're looking at this from a probability function or a, uh, a, a wave function, what's happening is you, you now have a person that's physically missing um, during this period of time and everything from universe. So let's say you have two, two separate universes here. Um, each one of these universes, one should not be thought as the mirror universe. Um, it appears to be a mirror, but it's still in itself a separate and distinct universe that appears to be more like a mirror than it does like the original universe, but that's still a separate and distinct universe. So in universe A, um, this is the, the universe where the daughter's there. In universe B, this is the, the universe where the mom's there. Now, these two universes are conjoined, kind of like twins. Um, and the reason they're conjoined is because of the fact that they're thought of to be perfect mirrors of each other. And that's what, that's what actually caused them to be conjoined to begin with. You know, so when you look at a mirror in one, you're going to see the mirror you know, universe in another. Um, not knowing that you're actually peering into another universe. So, anyways, he ends up discovering that he can actually cross over into this mirror universe, and that's where he could spend his time with his wife. Well, there is, you've got to keep in mind that there's two separate and distinct universes here. You know, it's not necessarily one's conscious or, or whatnot. It's just that you have two separate and distinct timelines that have occurred. One, where the mother's there, and she didn't die, and for some reason that's not mentioned in the story and everything, the daughter isn't in that one, and the other where the daughter's there, 
you know, but the mother's no longer there. So, these two different universes have two different conflicting timelines. So, any time that he doesn't spend in Universe A, where his daughter is and everything, creates a, creates a problem, or I shouldn't say a problem, it, it creates, um, it, it creates alternate histories based on the whole, uh, the whole question of where is he? Because this universe, every universe, in my opinion, is egocentric in nature. You know, it believes that it's the primary universe. You know, and every universe, I feel, is going to have the same belief system. That it is the primary universe. That all other universes are secondary to me. You know, and this is basically the egocentric way of universes in my, my belief system. So, universe A basically says, hey, we're the primary thread here. Um, and with this being the primary thread and everything, when we're missing an occupant, you know, of this, and we don't know where that occupant is, well, at that point, it, it enters kind of into search mode, trying to figure out where the fuck it is and why, you know, what's going on and everything. So, enter Universe B. Universe B basically says, hey, we have a new occupant here. Somebody that didn't exist before for whatever reasons. And as a result, we have a whole bunch of new possibilities for timelines. So what happens is you have Universe A, which is doing a search, and Universe B, which is basically saying, hey, we've got new possibilities. It, both of them create an explosion of possibilities. Well, eventually, this causes a rift in between the conjoined nature of these universes. That bubble in between those two different universes and everything will first appear in, in, the, in the portal, the, the path in between the two different places and everything. And what happens at that point is basically it creates the rift, you know, for the tunnel between the two that eventually f reinforces the separation of these two separate universes and for those that are actually within it to make the choice. Which one do you want to be in? Do you want to be in the universe A or universe B? It's not both. It's one or the other. You get to choose. So, in any case, um, the doctor, um, she provides an explanation that, um, that, that the second universe is a conscious universe. Um, and that it's actually fabricating all this stuff and everything, and, and it's trying to lure people here, and it's a trap, and she has this whole paranoid vision of what's going on with it. And it's just like, either this is new, or this is the first time I'm starting to recognize some of the paranoia with the doctor and everything. And uh, while I like, I like what she decides to call this secondary, this bubble in between it, she calls it an anti-zone, you know, and, and to some degree, I kind of like that, uh, that like, I like that analogy, you know, it's a little area in between, um, in between two different universes, it, it really doesn't have a classification system of its own, you know, just because it's basically, it's, it's time, um, that's more or less not tethered, you know, it's, it's possibilities that, that haven't been formed, that could potentially result in a separate universe in itself. It could potentially result in um, the influence of one universe or 
or the inclusion of elements inside one universe and the other. Um, but in itself, it's not a not a a a, a timeline. It is just simply a, a a point in space and time. And, and while sure it does have its own timeline, its timeline is contingent on um, these two conjoined universes. And the moment that those two conjoined universes d disappear or get separated, well, that anti-zone area could potentially disappear. But it could also still remain out there. It's like a bubble in space and time. That's the way I look at it. You know, so that bubble in space and time, you know, that conjoined fabric for that brief instant and everything, doesn't make it so where it's it's going to cease to exist once that once that bridge stops. And and this is actually kind of the reason I go back to the father didn't necessarily um, not go back to the daughter. Time for him ceased to move in the same way, you know, on in universe B that it did in universe A. As a result of this, his awareness of time and how much time had progressed um, was not one and the same as as it was, you know, in the world that he left and everything. So for him, what could have been nothing more than four hours and everything. And this is something never discussed in this uh, episode. They never even really get into the details about what his explanation is or anything like that. But more or less, he ends up, uh, you know, uh, the explanation really is time itself, you know, for each universe in themselves, you know, is moving at a different rate of speed, speed and time. You know, so for four hours on, on one universe, it could be four days in another. And this is actually what I think ended up happening. Strip away the paranoia. Strip away the finger pointing and saying, hey, it's a conscious universe, it's gone awry. You know, and it's, it's a paranoia, and paranoia is what reigns here. And, you know, boom, we're, we're under a trap and all this other stuff. I don't believe that's the case. You know, I believe that you have the, a, a separate and distinct universe that's been created by sheer thought alone. You know, by the will of the of the man who lost his wife and everything, he found a bridge to actually make it to that place and thought, and as a result, an entirely separate world was built. You know, that actually housed this this man, you know, and his wife, so he can actually spend time with her and everything. Didn't make it any less real than the original universe they took off from. So, in a typical Doctor Who fashion, now. Um, this is actually something I really hope they start getting away from. This is why I'm I'm talking so much about it. There's monsters. And there's so many monsters in this thing, you know. And when it comes down to it, there's this whole concept of paranoia and this this belief, you know, that um, everything's out to get them, you know. And uh, I I mean I I don't know, you know, if what I'm seeing and everything is. You know, I'm not gonna, not gonna say that. But it, it's like those boys for me back in grade school. I recognize in hindsight that my mind has the power, and had the power then to be able to create these children, to be able to manipulate their, manipulate them, to be able to antagonize them or say the perfect things to antagonize them and I could have been doing all this at a subconscious level and wasn't fully aware of it I recognize that 
When mom and dad says, go out and make new friends, they're not kidding. Your mind has the power to, in a literal sense, create new friends. I recognize the power of the mind to be able to do these things. And that's actually kind of what I'm hoping, if the doctor's listening, that you start actually taking, taking consideration of as well. Is it possible that you're looking for problems instead not taking the opportunity to actually make things work? In this case here, you had a man that's missing his wife. Two men that were missing their wives. And both men to repair this hole in between two different universes. You insisted until you got your way that the consciousness, that this universe was conscious. And you were so convicted with your belief system that ultimately you caused this fracture to, to be repaired and ultimately brought everybody back to your universe and everything. Now, I'm not sliding you. I'm just saying that you and I, we need some better stories to tell. You've got to quit being people's savior. You've got to be there for them. We gotta find better ways to let go of people. But we also gotta find each other. And not be afraid of what we say. And know that we're not going to be. Have it in our minds that we're going to be perfect for each other from the moment that we meet. Now I already know you are. Because I've already met you a couple times. Um, I'm looking through my notes. So the anti-zone, really, it's, I, I do like the concept, though. It just speaks of a, of a zone. You really can't classify it as a dimension, but it technically is a dimension. But referring to it as a zone probably is a lot more appropriate because you don't want to actually have formal presence and you don't want to give it a, a more significant label because it is a corridor. But um, this zone, this bridge in between two different places is more or less a collision of two separate timelines that are now getting fractured because elements that were not originally in those timelines are now being included and as a result it's causing a bubble to appear which could potentially be causing a third potentially or more potential new timelines as a result of it. Calling that an anti-zone I like the term it, it makes sense. 
whenever you have the collision between two I'm trying to think of where to put this. Whenever you have a collision between two universes. No, it has to be a persistent cl uh, connection. A per persistent collision. And it's not a collision either, is it? Whenever you have a connection between two different universes, this creates an imperceivable, uh, uh, generally speaking, an imperceivable anti-zone in between them. It's just basically, it's kind of like the gap in between two different uh, two different locations as you travel from one to the other. Now, something significant happening in one can actually widen this gap, cause a rift, <coughs> and cause a separation. And at at that point, the this area known as the anti-zone becomes visible. And it's up to those managing time, such as the doctor, to go through and repair that rift. That's their responsibility. But this doctor here, in my opinion, she needs to work on her delicacy. Her human relationship skills. Understanding that the husband and that these people were perfectly real. Now I'm not saying that her identification of a conscious of it being a conscious uniform uh, universe isn't entirely untrue, but that consciousness could have been there and fabricated by a couple people within that party in order to create that universe, basically because of the fact that they miss their significant others so tremendously and everything. And perhaps that needs to be honored. That's what I'm suggesting. somehow in any case um, I'm going to cut this short tonight I'm a little tired, just want to take it easy but um, I'm leaving tomorrow Los Angeles, Studio City uh, had a whole bunch of uh, really wonderful people come up again today that ended up saying goodbye and giving me hugs and all this other stuff um, pretty much all the staff over at Starbucks ended up putting a card together and everyone signed it and thanked me for various different things and everything. I acted as their police force and everything laws here, so I stopped a lot of the... Um, they called me their protector. So I stopped a lot of the thieves that uh, were coming in, and in a lot of cases, when it looked like a, a little tussle could be happening, I would be right there and basically making sure that uh, I you know, used my physical presence to p get people to back off and that kind of stuff. So... I mean, it just, um, I generally speaking, I like to, I like just basically trying to help them out, you know, they've helped me out and everything, so my way of giving back is just basically being present and being vigilant, I guess you can say, and they, each one of them seem to appreciate it, most of them are younger kids anyways, I mean, they're, you know, anywhere between the ages of about 17 and 18 years old to mid-20s, and, uh, I mean, I'm a big guy. I'm six foot two. I'm about 240, 250 pounds, and um, I mean, 
I'm not certainly not the weight that I was back in high school. It's about 190 back then, or no, 180 something when I graduated. So, you know, so I wasn't a big guy back then, but I've grown considerably since then, and I bulked up considerably since then. So, at my height, I had a, a bench press of about 400, and anymore, I, I'd be lucky to push 200, but I could still do it. Um, not like I'd be trying. But the simple fact of the matter is I know that my physical presence is intimidating to a lot of people. And while I don't use that, what I do do is I make sure that uh, those that need to see it, you know, particularly those that are acting as a threat to, you know, to Starbucks and to the people there, I'll jump in the way and basically make sure that they um, have the opportunity to see that, uh, that their behavior is just simply not desirable. And if they, if they persist, well... I will pick them up and I will throw them out. <laughs> so they um, they do seem to appreciate that, and they made it very clear in the uh, in the card that they appreciated it. So I I like the idea that I help make them feel safe going into work and everything. You know, for me, Starbucks and other companies like this, they definitely need to be able to feel safe coming into their places of employment and everything. So that's that was you know what I figured I'd spend my time helping them helping them do. Um, besides that, um, yeah, I just had some good people come up today. So Don came down. Don's a uh, he's an executive at Disneyland, and he does uh, a lot of distribution for the pictures like Pixar and that kind of stuff. He uh, he came down, and gave me a little gift, and. You know, I ended up, uh, gave every one of the guys man hugs and, you know, just, it was just a, a good day altogether. I'm going to miss these guys. I'll be the first to admit it. And I wish I had an apartment or some kind of, like, more permanent fixture and everything here in Studio City so I can hang out. Because I do like the area and I do like the atmosphere and the social nature and everything. Um, I just don't like, uh... <sighs> I just don't like having to sleep in this park, set up my tent and knock it down every day and have to go through and have somebody watching my stuff on a regular basis and not having the mobility to be able to go to places, other places and, you know, spend time in other places and everything. But this place has certainly served its purpose and everything. So picked up the bus ticket today. Um, that was pretty flawless. No problem at all. Did my laundry so I don't stink when I go you know, on the bus and everything, I got some snacks, so I've got some saltines and some other stuff and everything, and uh, I'll go in briefly tomorrow, probably get in about 8.30 over to Starbucks or 9 o'clock, and then uh, be there till 10, Bennett's going to come, and he's, uh, or, you know, provided he shows up, he's he's not exactly the easiest person to depend on sometimes, so hopefully he understands how important it is that I leave on time, and if I don't, uh, if he's not there on time, I'm not going to be there. So, I think he understands the importance of that, and, um, you know, when he does, uh, by 10 o'clock we'll be leaving, we'll be going over to uh, Denny's to have a, I'll have a nice big brunch, and uh, at that point uh, be full and rearing to go for a 24-hour trip uh, starting at 1 o'clock and ending at uh, about 11 o'clock on 11.30 on uh, on Tuesday up in Portland. So, it's been a while since uh, since I've taken a bus ride this long. Um, 
I mean, not that long, 2013, roughly. You know, some of the bus rides I took in, in Central America and everything. So, I definitely had a lot of bus rides that were equally as long, if not a little bit longer. So, it's all good. It's the way I look at it. Carry a sweater on board, I'll remember that, because some of these bus rides were always chillier. But, um, I'm going to miss the people here, without hesitation. I'm going to miss the atmosphere and uh, you know I'm definitely going to miss some of the sunshine that's for sure the weather here in Los Angeles does rock most of the time I get pissy as hell you know when it rains you know and that's just because I'm outdoors and having to deal with this rain sucks when you're dealing with mud and shit on the on the floor and trying to keep my stuff dry and everything so it just comes down to you know the 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 shit that I have to deal with because of ha where I'm sleeping and why, you know, um, unfortunately, it's just like it's not the perfect situation. You know, now, the daily activities and that kind of stuff, you know, the 8 to 8, to eight type stuff and everything, I enjoy, you know, for the most part. You know, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that I wouldn't mind doing on a regular basis. But the fact of the matter is I need, you know, I need to have some kind of income. Um just because the living situation having to have a house is is or a place to actually call a home is absolutely critical to me now i love the idea of doing this and going from country to country maybe finding a city like every six months you know and maybe a year and just basically going to a starbucks and finding a, a place to to hang my hat for you know, for a period of time while I'm working whatever project I'm working on or something like that and just have my dialogues and shit that I talk about and everything. You know, I'll probably still be bitching about shit here and there, but it is what it is. Um, probably not. I'll probably be getting laid on a regular basis. So I'll be a little bit happier at that point. I don't know. It's hard to tell. But, you know, that's actually kind of like like where I, I wish I wish life would take me. You know, is just basically the capability to every year have enough expendable income to basically get a service department. Um, you know, having somebody take care of it on a regular basis, so that way, and not someplace huge, just someplace that's you know comfortable, that's in a nicer, trendier area, and that kind of stuff. That's furnished. That's you know, I can go back to and just basically dig into the closet, and boom, I've got my own clothes and stuff and everything there, and. You know, it's if I've got a laundry bag that I can just throw in, and boom, I come back and my laundry's done at the end of the day. That for me is just the fucking dream. You know, that's that's where I want to take things. You know, and basically go if I want to go and spend some time in Argentina or 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 go over to um, Brazil or you know go back over to to Hong Kong or you know heck go and spend some time in Greece or go back to Paris and. I don't know. I mean, there's just so many different places. I just really wouldn't mind, you know, especially now that I'm comfortable and understanding of the feel of culture and the importance of culture, you know, and how it influences my work and everything. I, I realize that uh, it's just like that's kind of the direction I want to take things is basically being able to do exactly what I'm doing right now. You know, um, I mean, when it comes down to the 8 to 8 type stuff and, uh, and the regular habits, you know, on a, on a weekly basis, at least, you know, Saturdays and Sundays, I'd probably be taken off if I had the flexibility to be able to put the stuff up in my service department and go sightsee during the weekend or something like that, you know, um, 
that would be kind of the really where I would love to take things is basically be able to travel you know find my places that I can go to and that I can just spend my daily life you know in the corner cafe where I can become a regular and I get to know the locals and I get to know the people you know I make my set of friends and by the time I leave it's you know everybody's giving me a hug and everything you know where it's just like you're gonna be missed you've made an impact in my life or something like that I mean that just feels good I like that you know, and uh, to be able to do that and just basically wash, rinse, repeat, just go to places, get to know people, you know, make some friends, some new friends, and, you know, just find other destinations and that kind of stuff and spend, I don't know, maybe the next 15, 20 years just traveling the world doing that and that kind of stuff. That would be really cool. You know, but the absolute thing I have to have, and I've come to realize through the last four and a half years, I have to have the amenities. I mean, don't get me wrong. Being out here in the outdoors somewhat, you know, somewhat has woken me up. You know, has invigorated me a little bit. But for just as much as it has invigorated in me, I, I don't know if it's the stress of having to deal with other stuff, which has actually had to make me, keep me aware, you know, to the point of basically nervousness and everything on a regular basis. And that just, I don't think, is healthy. You know, it just doesn't feel right. So, <clears throat> you know, to have a place I can actually go to on a regular basis, you know, have a hot shower, you know, um, go take a crap on my own toilet, and my laundry's done when I get back, and place is dusted, and the sheets are taken care of on the bed and I could fall asleep and just hang out and you know play my a video game or something like that on a bigger screen TV I mean that's kind of where I want one thing to head so anyways also had another idea today thanks to Serena uh, Serena suggested that I write a book on programming I was helping uh, chase out um, learn some C-sharp, and uh, I recommend, well, I told him about the book that I used when I learned how to program, which is 101 Basic Programs by David All. This was way back in 1982 or something like that, 83. Um, and uh, I emailed David All and actually thanked him about four years ago and did get a response from him. He, you know, he said he appreciates the uh, the thanks and everything. And uh, Serena actually mentioned it. It's just like, you know, I, I had recommended to Chase to find a similar book and basically do the same thing. Go through and, and enter programs from a book. Don't take it from a TV screen or from a movie or from, or from a, you know, from a, um, a video or something like that. Take it from a book. That way you're... You know, there's no electronic medium. You're basically taking something from the analog world. You're putting it into a physical form, you know, on the electronic, you know, on the computer. And at that point, you're compiling it, and you actually get to understand how the syntax works for the language that you're working with. And uh, Serena goes, you should write a book like that, you know, for C, for C Sharp. You know, she knows that's the language that he's been working with. And I said, well, that's not a bad idea. You know, if he can't find one, you know, a book that does that, then that actually is incentive for me to do do a similar book. And while I'm doing the uh, programming for this Leisure Suit Larry thing, um, I can actually have some in-game games 
that uh, I might actually take the time to create first that might be included within a 101 basic or 101 C sharp programs and uh, do something similar, you know, that David all did. Contribute to my community in the same way. So, anyways, um, if he comes up and if he's able to find a book like that, then cool. And if not, well, uh, maybe I've got some uh, some other working material I can work on and have two projects I'm working at the same time. That way I keep my mind entertained. Typically, I like working on more than one project at the same time, if you don't don't know that about me already. So, I'm going to take a look myself, but uh, it's definitely food for fodder for a thought and everything. But anyways, I'm going to check out, um, I'm going to post this before I leave tomorrow, so I will have, uh, I'll, I'll probably be off, I don't know, I'll, next podcast is going to come when I get up to Portland, but 